0: On the 12th of February 1554, a girl of just 17 was led from her rooms in the Tower of London to the place of execution within its walls. Lady Jane Grey mounted the scaffold, her last act, which marked the end of a tumultuous six months, which had seen her proclaimed Queen, deposed just days later, imprisoned, tried, and subsequently sentenced to death. Lady Jane, perhaps more fairly, Queen Jane would be the youngest woman in English history to be attainted for treason and suffer the punishment that came with it. There is, in my opinion, no figure from history who has a more tragic story. But how much do we really know about Lady Jane? Was she the innocent bystander history would have us believe? And just how on earth did a teenage girl not born a princess end up sitting on the throne of England? Welcome back to the Tudor Chest, the podcast, episode 5, The Life and Death of Lady Jane Grey. Unfortunately, we have no confirmed date of birth for Lady Jane Grey, despite being the granddaughter of a Tudor princess. In this case Mary, the younger sister of Henry VIII, which also made Jane Grey the great-granddaughter of King Henry VII. It is generally accepted, however, that she was born around the summer of 1536 and named in honour of Queen Jane Seymour. Her parents were Henry Grey, 1st Duke of Suffolk, and Lady Frances Brandon. Frances was the elder of the two daughters born to Princess Mary. This made Jane Grey and her sisters Lady Catherine and Lady Mary first cousins once removed of Henry VIII's three children who would each go on to rule in their own right, Edward VI, Mary I and Elizabeth I. Despite this close proximity to the throne, there was never any expectation that Jane or her sisters would ever rule. As far as anyone was concerned, the crown would pass from Henry VIII and his son Prince Edward and from there to the children of Prince Edward, and so on. Despite this, Jane was undoubtedly a senior member of the Tudor court, with her mother given precedence above all women save the Queen and the royal princesses. As such, Jane was a prized commodity on the Tudor marriage market. She was also the Duke and Duchess's eldest surviving child, meaning that she received an excellent humanist education, something normally reserved solely for sons. She particularly excelled in languages and was said to be fluent in eight with a particular gift for Greek, Hebrew, Italian and Latin. She was also raised to follow the Protestant faith for which she adhered to fervently. Jane was said to be bookish, preferring study and prayer over hunting and outdoor pursuits. We have little in the way of physical descriptions of Jane to go off save that she was supposedly quite small in stature, with the copper hair colour so associated with the Tudor dynasty. Her short height is apparent from the fact that she was required to wear shoppines, a sort of platform shoe, under her dress when entering the Tower of London to give her more height and thus make her more visible. There is a belief that Jane felt her upbringing had been unduly harsh and strict. This has come off the back of a complaint that Jane supposedly gave to the scholar Roger Asham in which she told him, "'I am sharply taunted, so cruelly threatened, "'presently sometimes with pinches, nips and bobs, "'and other ways that I think myself in hell.'" Now this quote has left something, understandably, of a stain on Jane's parents, particularly her mother, Frances, who is viewed as cold and uncaring a reputation not helped by the depictions of Frances in film and television, most notably in the 1986 film Lady Jane, starring Helena Bonham Carter in the eponymous role. Whether this assessment is fair is impossible to prove, but it is possible that Jane was acting merely in a sort of stereotypical teenage fashion with some offhand angst towards her parents, which has since been blown out of proportion. In January 1547, King Henry VIII died, and with that, his son, Prince Edward, was proclaimed King Edward VI. As children, Edward and Jane were said to be very close, often playing for hours in the grounds of Hampton Court Palace. Once king, however, the ability for Jane and Edward to spend time together was understandably significantly reduced. The following month, Jane was sent to live in the household of Edward's uncle. Thomas Seymour, brother of his late mother, Queen Jane Seymour. Jane Grey was not the only royal ward staying with the Seymours. Princess Elizabeth was also present. The presence of the younger of Henry VIII's daughters has led to debate about how well the royal cousins got on. Elizabeth was famous for her intelligence and intellect, but it was commented that Jane Grey was smarter still. A sense of rivalry is thus put forward seen particularly in the miniseries Becoming Elizabeth which portrays a fractious relationship between Elizabeth and Jane although the evidence to support this is somewhat lacking. Thomas Seymour had married Henry VIII's final queen and widow Catherine Parr. Jane lived with Thomas and Catherine at Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire until Catherine died in September 1548. At the funeral, Jane would act as the chief mourner. She would then spend two further months living in Thomas's household before his arrest towards the end of 1548. Thomas' elder brother was the Lord Protector, Edward Seymour, the man who was king in all but name, during King Edward VI's minority rule. As the king had ascended to the throne at the age of just nine, it was decided that a council would rule in his stead until he was sufficiently mature enough to rule independently. Thomas Seymour, as the younger of the Seymour siblings, as is often the case, became power-hungry and was suspected of trying to incite rebellion by members of the Regency Council. Edward Seymour initially tried to save his brother from ruin, but when he was discovered outside of the king's apartments, gun in hand, having shot and killed one of the king's spaniels, nothing could be done. Thomas Seymour was tried and condemned to death he was executed in March of 1549. Jane would spend the next four years of her life back at her family estate, Bradgate Park in Leicestershire. In May of 1553, she wed Lord Guildford Dudley, a son of John Dudley, First Duke of Northumberland. Her sister, Lady Catherine, had been wed to Lord Herbert, heir to the Earldom of Pembroke. Dudley by this point was easily the most powerful man in England, having ousted protector Somerset and like the king he prescribed doggedly to the reformed Protestant faith. He was therefore forcibly against the third iteration of Henry VIII's Succession Act which was released in 1544. Henry VIII's will made it quite clear that should King Edward die before having children, that the crown would then pass to Princess Mary, the equally committed Catholic daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and after Mary, Henry's will named Princess Elizabeth, daughter of Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth would therefore be third in line. It is here that the stipulations of Henry's will became rather unorthodox, which arguably justified potential revisions to it, later down the line. After Elizabeth, the natural successor would have been the living descendants of Henry VIII's elder, although already deceased, sister Margaret, Queen of Scotland. Beyond her descendants, it would have been Jane Grey's mother, Frances, and then Jane and her sisters. Although it is not completely clear as to why Margaret of Scotland's children were removed from the line of succession, it is believed to have been due to their being born outside of England. Why Francis herself was not named is also unclear. Instead, any sons born to Francis, her heirs male, were to rank Henry decreed after Elizabeth, and after them, it would then go to Jane Grey. As there were no sons of Francis, Jane Grey was thus fourth in the line of succession under Henry VIII's will. Just a few weeks after Lady Jane's marriage to Lord Guildford, the King became gravely ill. At this point, he made changes to the predetermined will of his father and drafted a new line of succession, which he called My Device for the Succession. The idea that his half-sister Mary would follow his reign was utterly repellent to Edward twice over, for both her religion and Mary's sex went against her. In Edward's eyes, like his father, ruling was the stuff of men and not women. Edward also believed that anyone following his reign had to be legitimate in law, which also neatly removed his other half-sister Elizabeth from the line of succession. He had already altered his will earlier in the year to mirror his father's, so that it read that should he die before having children, that the then non-existent male descendants that may come of Francis Brandon would be Edward's heirs. Should Francis bear no sons, then it would pass to the Lady Jane's heirs male. For Edward VI, however, there simply was no time. The king and his counsellors knew that he was dying, and at the eleventh hour, he finally agreed that he would have to name a female heir to his crown. And so, with the addition of just two small words, the device for the succession shifted from the Lady Jane's heirs male and became the Lady Jane and her heirs male. With the addition of just two extra words, Jane Grey became the heir apparent to Edward's throne. Many convincingly believe that the machinations of John Dudley, Jane's father in law, were the true driving force behind Edward's change of will. By naming Jane as his heir, that also by extension made Dudley's son Guildford the consort of the Queen in Waiting. Did the Duke believe that Jane would make Guildford the King consort? It's possible. This was uncharted territory, but there had never been a crowned Queen regnant in English history. The closest thing to it had been the Empress Matilda in the 12th century, who for a time carried the title Lady of the English, but crucially she was never formally crowned. and As such, there was no precedence to follow to show how Jane should be treated and by extension what role her husband should play. There had never been King Consort and that title does not exist even today. King Edward VI died from tuberculosis or what is believed to be tuberculosis on the 6th of July 1553 at the age of just 15. His death was not announced for four whole days, a highly unusual move. Many believe that this delay was orchestrated by John Dudley for it gave him breathing time to solidify Jane's rule and ensure a smooth coup d'etat. On the 9th of July, Jane was told that she had become Queen. She accepted the crown, we are told, most reluctantly, openly stating that it was not hers and belonged to the Lady Mary. Despite her reservations, however, she was competent enough to flex some of her royal powers. Dudley had expected a royal puppet, who, as I say above, would name his son Guilford as King, but Jane refused. She held some reservations about her own right to the crown, but recognised nonetheless that she was in the line of succession. By contrast, Guilford had no such claim and so Jane advised that she would instead make him a duke. On the 10th of July, which also happens to be my birthday, Jane made the customary trip to the Tower of London to await her coronation. She could not have known in that moment that her reign would be the shortest in British history. A major task that Dudley faced to ensure Jane's rule went unchallenged was to totally isolate and neutralise Princess Mary. His greatest hope was to go a step further and have her arrested. But this was to overlook the broad popularity of Henry the Ape's eldest daughter, not to mention her vast network of supporters But somehow word reached Mary that there was a plot to block her from the crown. When word reached Mary that Dudley had successfully displaced her rule and placed Jane Grey on the throne, she immediately began rallying troops to challenge him and Lady Jane. On the 14th of July, Dudley left London, heading to Norfolk to capture Mary. A huge mistake. In his absence, Dudley's entire plan fell apart. Under overwhelming popular support from the people, who saw Mary as the rightful queen, The Privy Council switched allegiances naming Mary Queen on July 19th. Jane's rule was now over. Although known to history as the Nine Days Queen, Jane was actually Queen from the moment that Edward VI breathed his last, and as such, she was actually Queen for 13 days, but this doesn't really have the same ring to it. From being Queen-in-waiting to Queen, Jane was now a prisoner in the Tower of London, She was held in the gentleman jailer's apartments, with Guildford housed in the Beecham Tower. Jane's father, the Duke of Suffolk, was also imprisoned, although released shortly after when Lady Frances rode to meet with her cousin, Queen Mary. He pleaded with the Queen, placing the blame of the coup squarely at John Dudley's feet. The subject of what would happen to Jane and Guildford wasn't decided straight away. The same cannot be said for John Dudley who was captured on the 20th of July in Cambridge. He did not attempt to flee or to resist, realising that to do so would be folly. Five days later, he was escorted through London to the Tower. It was said that his guards struggled to keep the angry people of the capital from attacking him. They pelted him with rotten food and hurled abuse. He was tried on the 18th of August and sentenced to death to be carried out on the 21st. Perhaps hoping to be spared, he converted to the Catholic faith, but this was to be an empty move. Mary proceeded with the sentence and he was beheaded on the 22nd on Tower Hill, in front of a crowd of approximately 10,000 spectators. It was said that when Jane was made aware of her father-in-law's religious conversion, that she exploded in anger. Now known as Jane Dudley, Jane was charged with high treason and just under two months after the Duke's execution, on the 13th of November, it was finally time for Jane to take to the stand. Her trial took place at the Guildhall in London alongside her husband Guildford and two of his brothers as well as Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Unsurprisingly, the verdict was a foregone conclusion. All were found guilty and sentenced to death. The specific crime that Jane was convicted of was that she had treacherously assumed the title and power of the monarch. The evidence for this was a number of documents being put forward in which she had signed as Jane the Queen. She could therefore be burned or beheaded at Queen Mary's pleasure. The Queen was, however, disposed to be merciful. She believed Jane to be the pawn of more powerful men around her, a wronged innocent. She would also extend this clemency to Lord Guildford and his brothers. They were, however, kept in the Tower of London as prisoners for the time being. Devastatingly for Jane, matters beyond her control would ultimately turn the tide firmly against her. In January of 1554, a Kentishman named Sir Thomas Wyatt, son of the famed poet of the same name, rebelled against the Queen in response to her planned marriage to Prince Philip of Spain. Jane's father, Henry Grey, and two of his brothers had joined Wyatt's cause, the aim of which was to deplace Mary and put Princess Elizabeth on the throne. Faced with the unfortunate reality that whilst Jane lived, there would always be the chance of insurrection, Mary regretfully agreed to proceed with the executions, mercifully deciding on the quicker death of decapitation for all concerned. Jane and Guildford's executions were initially planned for February the 9th but were postponed to allow Jane to convert to the Catholic faith it was hoped by queen mary that if they did convert that jane and her husband would no longer be seen as a threat and their lives could be spared the attempt however was to be in vain was a fervently committed catholic jane was an equally committed protestant and was displeased at the attempts to convert her from what she believed to be the true faith. Despite this, the man who had been sent to convert Jane, John Feckenham, earned her respect and they developed a friendship which extended as far as Jane allowing him to assist her to the scaffold. Guilford Dudley, as the lower ranking of the two, was executed first and before the Spectators of London. He was escorted from his rooms on the morning of February 12th to Tower Hill. It was said that many gentlemen whom he had known waited to shake his hands as he made his way towards the scaffold. The execution was mercifully quick, consisting of a single blow from the axe. Guilford was likely no older than around 19 at the time of his death. In a macabre display, Guilford's remains were then hauled onto a cart and carried past the rooms where Jane Grey was being held. She was looking down from a window and saw her husband's corpse, to which she reportedly said out loud, O oh, Guilford, Guilford." Shortly afterwards, the Constable of the Tower came to fetch Jane and escort her to the place of execution. Unlike Guilford, because Jane was a member of the Royal Family, she was to be executed privately inside the walls of the Tower. She chose a simple black velvet gown and was said to be a tiny pale figure on the scaffold. She made a speech which followed the expected pattern of the day, admitting her guilt against the Queen's Highness. Despite her admission of guilt, she also stated that I do wash my hands thereof in innocence, perhaps a calculated way of saying that she felt herself to be ultimately innocent of the charges brought against her. She turned to the executioner and said, I pray you dispatch me quickly, and referring to her head, asked, Will you take it off before I lay me down? To which the executioner responded, No, madam. Jane was then blindfolded and knelt at the block. What happened next is one of the more well-known aspects of Jane's execution. It is said that she panicked, as the blindfold that she wore Left her unable to locate the block. The poor girl whimpered, Where is it? What should I do? An unknown spectator then rushed forward and guided her hands towards the block. She laid her head in the crevice and recounted, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This was the sign the executioner needed. Like her husband, Jane was spared a protracted death and was beheaded with a single blow of the axe. Both she and Guildford were buried in the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula inside the walls of the Tower of London. Eleven days later, Jane Grey's father, Henry Grey, would follow her to the block. As he stood on the scaffold, surely Henry Grey must have had a moment of contemplation where he asked himself, was it really worth it? Jane's mother Frances was eventually pardoned by Queen Mary and permitted to live at the royal court with her two surviving daughters. She would remarry, but wisely chose a man of lowly origins, Adrian Strokes, her horsemaster, with whom she had three children who sadly all died in infancy. I stated at the start of this episode that I believe Jane Grey to be perhaps the greatest of the Tudor tragedies. She was a gifted and brilliant young woman, and based on everything we know of her, if Jane were alive today, I think she'd have ruled the world. To think that a girl of just 16 or at most 17 could be so brutally executed for something that was entirely beyond her control is incredibly hard to compute in the 21st century. It seems barbaric to us. Equally, it is easy to understand that Mary felt incredibly pressured by those around her. Ironically, it actually did the Queen no favours. Many of her supporters felt that the executions of Jane and Guildford were unduly harsh. And this was a reign that was characterised by its bloodshed. When reviewing Jane's life, there is a question which is seldom asked or discussed, and that is her legitimacy. And I don't mean that in the context of her birth, but in her legitimacy to the throne of England itself. This question was examined at length in an amazing three part documentary series about Jane Grey by the historian and author Helen Castor. During this programme, J. Stephen Edwards, a Tudor historian, makes the case that Jane was actually the true and rightful heir to Edward's throne because as the king of the day Edward's decision counted for more than Henry VIII's pre-existing will. He argues that Henry's will was, in effect, meaningless once Edward became king and from there onwards that it was his will that mattered and not his deceased father's. On the face of it, this is undeniably true, and things may well have gone in Jane's favour had her father-in-law not left London and had managed to arrest Mary, but that simply couldn't counteract the overwhelming level of support that Mary herself had with the common people. Jane may have been a wronged innocent, but she was also, broadly speaking, an unknown, particularly with the commons. To the people of England, Mary had been a permanent fixture in many of their hearts and minds and it was to her that their loyalties would ultimately lay. Moreover, Edward's device for the succession was never ratified in the English Parliament. It was thus technically illegal and did not carry huge weight. It is this point that many argue ultimately ensured that Mary's claim remained the stronger. Perhaps owing to her incredibly short reign, Lady Jane Grey is the only monarch from the past 500 years for whom a contemporary portrait does not exist. There are countless sketches and paintings said to depict Jane, but none can be proven beyond all doubt as undeniably being her. The most convincing is a portrait that was discovered in Streatham, South London, in 2005, which many believe to be Jane Grey. Even if it does indeed depict her, from dendrochronology tests it certainly wasn't contemporary. From the accounts of the time of Jane's life we know that she did sit for a formal portrait and so it is entirely possible that one of the sketches and images that we have of Jane are direct copies of a long-lost original. To this day Jane's remains are buried inside the chapel of St Peter at Vincula beside her husband Lord Guilford Dudley. Their remains were not examined or uncovered during the restoration work done to the church in 1876, and as such we cannot say exactly where she is buried, although marble plaques to both Jane and Guildford are nonetheless on display in the little church. Despite her very short reign, it should never be forgotten that Jane Grey achieved something no woman had done up to that point. She was formally acknowledged by the council as Queen of England in her own right. Her story is desperately sad and should have ended very differently. Beyond all doubt this was a girl who deserved so much better. And so that brings me to the end of this episode 5 of The Tudor Chest, the podcast. Next week I'm diving into the world of costuming in Tudor film and television and welcoming my first guest speakers, in addition to my weekly episode, I also put a subscriber-only episode out each Tuesday on my Patreon account. To listen to that, and to get access to much more from the Tudor Chest, please head to patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest. Thank you all, and speak soon.